Hey there, it's Kathy. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to History of the 90s early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. In our last episode, we started exploring some of the groundbreaking movies from 1999. Instant classics like Being John Malkovich, Fight Club, Three Kings, The Blair Witch Project, Election, and Boys Don't Cry. If you didn't hear it, I recommend you go back and have a listen. Those movies, though, they really are just the tip of the iceberg when it comes to 1999. There were so many other innovative films that tapped into some hot-button issues at the turn of the century. Y2K, consumerism, technology, and a general feeling of discontent. So on this episode of History of the 90s, we continue to look back at a year that seemed to have an endless supply of game-changing original movies. And a quick warning, like last time, there will be swear words in this episode, and there will be spoilers. In the 90s, movies were still everything. Going to the theater was considered cool. I mean, it's not like we had many other options. TV and cable didn't have the high-quality shows we're used to now, and there wasn't the flood of content we get today from streaming services. So when an interesting new movie was released, it was a big deal. Movies were just, that was it. I mean, that was popular culture along with, you know, teen pop and, and, and magazines and all of the things that have, you know, kind of come and gone over the years now. That's author Brian Raftery. As a culture critic, he's written about movies for GQ, Rolling Stone, and Esquire. Brian thinks we will likely never see another time when we have so many filmmakers of various generations and influences making so many good films for an audience quite so big. I mean, 99 was kind of sort of the the peak moment for really adventurous movie making and risk taking on a big studio level um and nowadays that doesn't happen obviously to the same degree but back then it just seemed like this was going to last forever it just seemed like of course you had to go to the movies every weekend because you know there were two or three really interesting or great movies opening every weekend and they were such a big part of the cultural conversation one movie in particular made a massive impact on the cultural conversation in 1999 with its almost psychic understanding of the direction our world was heading in. You take the blue pill, the story ends, you wake up in your bed and believe whatever you want to believe. You take the red pill, you stay in Wonderland, and I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. When Lily and Lana Wachowski first started working on The Matrix in the early 90s, they pictured it as a sci-fi comic book. 
The siblings were influenced by an eclectic range of topics, including Hong Kong action movies, the power of the internet, Homer's The Odyssey, mythology, Zen Buddhism, quantum physics, and classic sci-fi movies. Like I said, an eclectic range of topics. And while listening to music by Rage Against the Machine and Ministry, they spent several years filling up pages of notebooks with ideas for their comic book, which would incorporate all of these concepts. Eventually, though, they realized they had something bigger on their hands, and they began working on a screenplay. The story they imagined takes place in a dystopian future about 200 years from the present. It follows Neo, a young software programmer by day and hacker by night, who learns the world isn't what he thought after meeting sunglass-wearing operative Morpheus. This is the world that you know. The world as it was at the end of the 20th century. It exists now only as part of a neural interactive simulation that we call the Matrix. You've been living in a dream world, Neo. This is the world as it exists today. What Morpheus asks next immediately became part of pop culture. Neo has to choose between the blue pill and the red pill. Swallow the blue pill and continue living obliviously in the Matrix, or swallow the red pill and fulfill his destiny as the one and help liberate humanity by destroying the Matrix. Obviously, Neo chooses the red pill and becomes a superhero dressed in black leather, with the ability to bend the rules of physics, jump across buildings, learn any skill, and fight any bad guy. Will Smith was actually the actor first considered for the role, but he turned it down, something he says he's not proud of. But he just didn't get it when filmmakers described their vision of liquid action scenes. So Neo ended up going to Keanu Reeves, who was struggling to find another Hollywood hit after the success of Speed in 1994. The Matrix would take him from movie star to legend. For Morpheus, Warner Brothers first offered it to Arnold Schwarzenegger and Michael Douglas, but they both declined, which was okay for the Wachowskis because they had someone else in mind, Lawrence Fishburne. As for Trinity, the female lead, Jada Pinkett Smith auditioned for the role, but she didn't click with Keanu, so instead the Wachowskis went with Canadian-born actor Carrie Ann Moss. The Matrix team spent months in training. Every day, they reported to a warehouse in Burbank, where Yuan Wuping, a legendary martial arts choreographer, put them through the ringer and made them practice punching and kicking for hours on end. But it was going to take more than some kick-ass martial arts moves to capture the most memorable part of the Matrix, something called bullet time. You know what I'm talking about, that scene where Neo throws himself backwards in slow motion as a bullet soars over him like a bead of mercury, while the camera simultaneously arcs around him in real time. That innovative shot, and others like it, were devised because the Wachowskis wanted to use slow motion to bring their comic book vision to life. The effect was created by placing cameras in a 360-degree circle around the action, and then stitching their images together 
in a way that makes viewers feel like they're moving around a slow-motion scene. The Wachowskis didn't invent bullet time technology, but it had never been used like this before, and it changed Hollywood forever. The effect was soon copied and parodied in movies, on TV, and even in commercials. That one scene between Neo and Agent Smith on the rooftop took nearly two years to complete and cost about $750,000. Now, that may seem like a lot, but just think, the total budget for The Matrix was a whopping $63 million. And it was worth every penny, because the groundbreaking movie went on to earn $463 million in worldwide ticket sales putting it fourth on the movie earnings list for 1999. And it earned four Technical Academy Awards, including Best Visual Effects. In the two decades since its release, The Matrix has taken on a life of its own. On the dark side of the internet, the red pill, blue pill concept of knowledge versus blissful ignorance has been hijacked by an anonymous group of men who set up an online community on Reddit called The Red Pill. Their general belief is that female oppression is a myth, and men are the ones who have been subjugated, and it encourages followers to metaphorically choose the red pill and awaken to reality. Alternatively, for some in the trans community, The Matrix replicates what the trans experience is like prior to coming out. Lana Wachowski came out as trans in 2010, Though rumors regarding her gender identity had swirled as far back as the release of The Matrix Reloaded in 2003. Lily Wachowski came out in 2016. The Matrix is at the center of multiple arguments about how the sisters' transness informs their work. So it's quite ironic that those in the red pill movement are co-opting the idea of the red and blue pills, which was dreamed up by two trans women. The Matrix really was a movie ahead of its time. Not just the special effects, but the whole idea of technology taking over our lives. Something few people in 1999 were thinking about. But we sure think about it now, almost daily. I mean, just look at your screen time use on your phone. Are you controlling it, or is it controlling you? Another movie that had us questioning reality starred a frightened little boy with a very special skill. I see dead people. In your dreams? While you're awake? Dead people like in graves and coffins? Walking around like regular people. They don't see each other. They only see what they want to see. They don't know they're dead. How often do you see them? When M. Night Shyamalan first started working on the script for The Sixth Sense, it was about a middle-aged man and a young boy who has the ability to see the victims of serial killers. Shyamalan told Brian Raftery for his book, The Best Movie Year Ever, that it was really a rip-off of The Silence of the Lambs. 
But the more he worked on it, the more he realized it wasn't going to work. Instead, he dropped the serial killer angle and focused on a child psychologist whose nine-year-old patient claims to have the ability to see dead people. When it was done, Shyamalan's creepy script created a bidding war between studios. Disney won, purchasing The Sixth Sense for $3 million, and they agreed to let Shyamalan direct the movie himself. This was important to Shyamalan because his last movie had not gone well. He wrote and directed Wide Awake, starring Rosie O'Donnell, for Miramax. But after a battle with studio boss Harvey Weinstein, who insisted the movie be recut, it was shelved for a few years, and then it bombed when it was only released in a few select theaters. Shyamalan was extremely disappointed, and legend has it that he wrote the script for Sixth Sense as a I'll-show-you kind of project. Well, it worked. The Sixth Sense was a box office phenomenon in 1999, which was a bit of a surprise since Disney decided to release it under the radar in August. This is considered a dumping ground for movies with low expectations. A lot of success had to do with the movie's surprise ending. Remember I warned you there would be spoilers? Well, here comes one. Amazingly, the big twist that Bruce Willis's character had been dead all along was mostly kept a secret by moviegoers, much like the big reveal in the 1992 movie The Crying Game. So the majority of people went into the movie not knowing the ending. The internet was still new enough that there weren't the kind of trolls we would see today trying to spoil the ending. As a result, the audience could participate in the shared community experience of learning that Willis's character was actually a ghost. It was the twist that everyone was talking about without actually revealing what it was. Spoiler culture wasn't, you know, movies could be spoiled and it, it was possible to find out what the Sixth Sense, you know, the secret of the Sixth Sense was or whether or not Blair Witch was real. I don't think people were seeking it out. You had to be a real you're a real jerk to spoil the movie for someone because you had to really go out of your way. The Chicago Tribune in 2019 called it one of the great word-of-mouth movies of the pre-Marvel, pre-blockbuster era. Because of all the buzz about the big twist, The Sixth Sense stayed in theaters for nine months, earning $672 million worldwide. It was the second highest-grossing movie in 1999, behind only Phantom Menace and ahead of blockbusters such as Toy Story 2 and Austin Powers' The Spy Who Shagged Me. Another part of the success of this movie was the freakishly amazing performance by 11-year-old Haley Joel Osment. Shyamalan told Brian Raftery that during Osment's audition, both he and the actor were moved to tears. Shyamalan immediately called the casting director and said, I don't want to do this movie if it isn't this kid. Grandma says hi. She says she's sorry for taking the bumblebee pendant. She just likes it a lot. What? Grandma comes to visit me sometimes. Cole, that's very wrong. Grandma's gone, you know that. I know. She wanted me to tell you. Cole, please She wanted me to tell you she saw you dance. Osmond was joined by Bruce Willis, who was better known as this guy. He played low-key psychologist Dr. Malcolm Crowe, who's hired by the boy's distraught mother, played by Tony Collette. 
The Sixth Sense was much more than the usual psychological thriller or horror movie. It was slow and somber and filled with emotion. It also used Easter eggs before anybody even called them that. If you watch the movie now, you'll see there were a ton of hints, clues, repeating patterns and motifs, including the use of the color red, which is often used to foreshadow the presence of a ghost. Look back, you'll see red balloons, red bedspreads, red nail polish, red dresses. They're all there if you're looking for them. It certainly was ahead of its time, and it launched the career of Shyamalan, who was compared to Spielberg and Hitchcock, and the film was nominated for six Academy Awards, including Best Picture, Best Supporting Actress for Toni Collette, and Best Supporting Actor for the young acting savant Osmond. It has also influenced a generation of suspense and horror movies that came after it. It's no surprise the current king of psychological terror, Jordan Peele, is a fan. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Sax.com. Okay, let's lighten the mood a little bit. Uh, we have sort of a problem here. Yeah, you apparently didn't put one of the new cover sheets on your TPS reports. Oh, yeah, I'm sorry about that. I I forgot. Mmm, yeah. You see, we're putting the cover sheets on all TPS reports now before they go out. Did you see the memo about this? Office Space, a movie about the soul-sucking cubicle culture that had exploded in the 90s, is a cult classic today. But it was actually a major flop in 1999. It only made $10.8 million at the box office. But like other classics from that era, it found a permanent place in pop culture history after it went to DVD and eventually cable TV. Office Space was written and directed by Mike Judge, the creator of the incredibly popular 90s MTV cartoon, Beavis and Butthead. Before bringing those lovable dirtbags to life, Judge earned a degree in physics and worked his fair share of boring office jobs. While slogging away in the corporate world, he took up a new hobby. He taught himself animation and soon came up with a series of short cartoons starring a dweeby office worker named Milton, who was obsessed with his stapler. I told Bill if they move my desk one more time, I'm quitting. I used to be over by the window, and they moved me three times already this year. And if they do it one more time, I'm out of here. One of the shorts starring Milton, called Office Space, aired on MTV. And so did another short featuring Beavis and Butthead, which became the main focus for Judge for the next few years and culminated with the 1996 movie Beavis and Butthead Do America. But Judge had not forgotten about Office Space, and he soon developed a script for a live-action feature that captured his experience as a former frustrated office drone. 20th Century Fox jumped at the chance to make the movie and initially gave Judge a lot of freedom when it came to casting. For the three main roles, he picked Ron Livingston, who had recently played a supporting role in Swingers, David Herman, who had spent a couple of years on the Fox sketch series Mad TV, 
and A.J. Nadu, who had recently worked on the movie Pi. Stephen Root, who did the voices of Bill and Buck on Mike Judge's other animated show, King of the Hill, was cast as Milton, who would be a sidebar character in this version of Office Space. None of these actors were very well known, and this made the studio nervous. They even tried to get a star to play a cameo role as Lawrence, Peter Gibbons' neighbor. They floated the idea to Johnny Depp and Billy Bob Thornton, but it didn't pan out. Instead, they had to settle on Diedrich Bader from The Drew Carey Show. With the lack of star power, the studio had doubts about the project. That is, until Jennifer Aniston signed on. Aniston, who at the time played Rachel Green on Friends, was, and well, probably still is, one of the most recognizable stars in the world. After Judge snagged her for the part, the studio let out a sigh of relief and let the project proceed. Aniston plays Joanna, an easygoing waitress at a chain restaurant called Tchotchkes, who is a love interest for Peter. Joanna is relentlessly harassed by her boss for not having enough decorative buttons on her uniform. We need to talk about your flair. Really? I, I have 15 pieces on. I, I, I well, okay, 15 is the minimum, okay? It's a direct dig at TGI Fridays, whose wait staff dressed in dorky striped shirts and were required to wear a flurry of pins and buttons known as flare. Judge told New York Magazine in 2004 that several years after Office Space came out, TGI Fridays dropped the dress code because so many people were coming into the restaurant making cracks about the mandated flare. Anyone who has spent any time working in an office or any other mind-numbing job can relate to this movie. Even its villain is incredibly familiar, a beeping, uncooperative printer. No, not again. I... Why does it say paper jam when there is no paper jam? I swear to God, one of these days I, I, I just kick this piece of shit out the window. You and me both, man. I think it's lucky I'm not armed. Piece of shit. In one of the film's most memorable scenes, Peter and his co-workers take the printer to a field and kick the crap out of it. The slow-motion beating is set to the gangster rap beats of Still by Ghetto Boys. Mike Judge told Brian Raftery for his book Best Movie Year Ever that Fox hated the music in the movie, which had a rap-heavy soundtrack. But after getting positive feedback at a few test screenings, they decided to keep it as is, and Office Space elevated the painfully mundane and turned it into comedic gold. While Office Space was looking at the malaise that was seeping into the late 90s workplace, American Beauty looked at the malaise of suburban family life. When it came out, it was an Oscar-winning hit, but in the years since, it's become a source of scorn and even ridicule. To understand why, let's first take a look back at the movie. American Beauty was written by Alan Ball, who would later go on to create Six Feet Under. Ball started in theater and then switched to writing on a couple of TV shows, including Sybil, the sitcom starring Sybil Shepherd. Ball told Brian Raftery in his book that writing for TV was horrible. He wanted to quit Sybil, but the money was so good he couldn't walk away. Ball said he felt like a whore and he started writing the screenplay for American Beauty as a way to funnel all his frustration and anger. 
The idea for American Beauty first started percolating in the early 90s when Ball was following the coverage of the Amy Fisher story, something we covered in our very first episode of History of the 90s. Fisher was the teenage girl who shot her older lover's wife in the face when he tried to end the relationship. The lurid story of Amy and Joey Buttafuoco was a tabloid sensation, and she was dubbed the Long Island Lolita. Ball was inspired to write a story about an upper-middle-class family torn apart by infidelity and ultimately an act of violence. And so American Beauty follows a middle-aged ad executive who falls for his daughter's teenage best friend, along with his unfaithful wife, his daughter, and the creepy boy next door. In an unlikely pairing, the completed script found its way to Steven Spielberg, who was looking for material for DreamWorks Studio, which he had co-founded in 1994, but it wasn't yet the powerhouse it is today. DreamWorks began production on American Beauty in 1998 with a budget of $15 million. And Spielberg decided to take a gamble and put first-time director Sam Mendes in charge. Kevin Spacey and Annette Bening were cast as the unhappy married couple Lester and Carolyn Burnham, while Thora Birch won the part as Jane, their alienated daughter. Mendez, who's gone on to make a slew of impressive movies, including last year's cinematic feat, 1917, artfully captured the blandness of suburbia. The movie had almost like a dreamlike quality that was especially evident in that now infamous blowing bag scene. Creepy neighbor Ricky shows Jane a video he made of a plastic bag blowing in the wind. As they watch the bag rising and falling in the vortex, Ricky tells Jane, Sometimes there's so much beauty in the world, I feel like I can't take it, and my heart is just going to cave in. That oppressive malaise was also found in Lester Burnham, who Mendez was able to perfectly depict as having an utterly boring and dismal existence. My name is Lester Burnham. This is my neighborhood. This is my street. This is my life. I'm 42 years old. In less than a year, I'll be dead. Of course, I don't know that yet. And in a way, I'm dead already. American Beauty premiered at the Toronto Film Festival in September 1999 and was an immediate hit. Critics compared it to favorites like The Graduate, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, and Ordinary People. Roger Ebert awarded the movie four stars, and The New Yorker called it by far the strongest American film of the year. It earned $356 million worldwide, placing it ninth on the movie earning list for 1999. When award season rolled around, American Beauty cleaned up taking home five Oscars, including Best Picture, Best Director, Best Actor for Kevin Spacey, Best Original Screenplay, and Best Cinematography. At the time, the Best Picture nod for American Beauty was seen as forward-thinking. Typically, the Best Picture Oscar went to sweeping period pieces like Chariots of Fire, Gandhi, Schindler's List, Braveheart, The English Patient, and Titanic. But this was totally different. 
a satire about modern family life dealing with some touchy issues like sex, drugs, homophobia, infidelity, and suburban dysfunction. Today, American Beauty is by and large seen as anything but forward-thinking. It's seen as a movie full of obvious transgressions. The two biggest being Lester's lust for a teenage girl and the insensitive portrayal of Lester's neighbor, an abusive, closeted gay Marine. After the neighbor tries to kiss Lester and is rebuffed, he returns with a gun and kills him. In a HuffPost article in 2019, entertainment reporter Matthew Jacobs writes that Ball and Mendez were attempting to criticize the materialistic facades of upper-class Americans. But their ideas about overcoming pedophilia are reductive, and their treatment of gayness as a fatal revelation underlines how much American beauty is a product of its time. And that scene with the plastic bag blowing in the air has become a bit of a punchline. It's been parodied on Family Guy, Broad City, and Inside Amy Schumer. Brian Raftery was part of a small group that didn't like American Beauty even when it was first released. You know, the stuff I didn't like about it in 1999 where I was like, yeah, what is this? There's Nazis living in the suburbs. Come on. Now that actually feels, unfortunately, kind of like, you know, some of the, some of the ideas in there I think are a lot more... Um, I think that movie was maybe a little bit ahead of its time in some ways. I still don't love it, but I can really appreciate a lot of it. And there's and there is some really good writing in there. That, that's a movie that took me a long time to kind of fully appreciate. Another shadow hanging over the movie now, of course, are the allegations against its star, Kevin Spacey. The movie began to lose its appeal long before Spacey was subjected to cancel culture. But that certainly hasn't helped its legacy. So I think we've established that 1999 was a golden year for movies. But I think it's important to also mention what an incredibly hot year it was for teen movies in particular. There were no less than 15 high school set films. As the offspring of baby boomers entered their formative years in the 90s, there were more teens in the U.S. than ever before. 30.9 million Americans were between the ages of 12 and 19. There had been plenty of teen movies leading up to 1999, including The Craft, Scream, and of course, the massively popular Clueless, which is based on Jane Austen's Emma. Brian Raftery says these surprise hits kicked off a phenomenon dubbed teen exploitation. Teen movies were being cranked out quickly and cheaply in an effort to keep young moviegoers happy. So by 1999, there was a flood of teen exploitation films, including Varsity Blues, She's All That, and Cruel Intentions. But there are two others that stand out from the pack. Ten Things I Hate About You and American Pie. So let's take a closer look at those two. After seeing Clueless, Kirsten Kiwi-Smith and her writing partner set out to find a literary classic they could also adapt into a high school film. They settled on Shakespeare's Taming of the Shrew and started writing a script. In Shakespeare's version, an independently-minded young woman is reformed or tamed by a suitor. Their version updated the 16th century tale's questionable gender politics and added a dose of late 90s riot girl energy. Within six months of completing their screenplay, Disney optioned the rights and 10 Things I Hate About You hit theaters on March 31, 1999. 
Like Clueless, 10 Things soon became a classic teen movie. The Seattle high school comedy featured 90s teen magazine heartthrob Joseph Gordon-Levitt, along with two virtually unknown actors, Julia Stiles as Cat, the shrew, and Heath Ledger as Patrick, the tamer, in his first American movie role. An article for the AV Club says 10 Things still feels fresh today because it's subtly elevated teen rom-com tropes with more thought and craft than we're usually given. For example, the scene when Heath Ledger's character interrupts Cat's soccer practice to perform an old Frankie Valli song backed by a marching band. I love you, Ledger is adorable, strutting through the stands as he pours his heart into the song. And if that wasn't enough, Julia Stiles has her own iconic scene as well, when she delivered her poem, 10 Things I Hate About You, in English class. I hate the way you're always right. I hate it when you lie. I hate it when you make me laugh, even worse when you make me cry. The movie also had an incredible cast of supporting characters, which made the ensemble film feel as relatable to teens as the John Hughes classic The Breakfast Club had 14 years earlier. 10 Things I Hate About You earned $53 million worldwide, which wasn't too bad, considering it cost just $16 million to make. But the biggest teen movie of 1999 was a little raunchier than 10 Things. Okay, it was a lot raunchier. American Pie was the brainchild of Adam Herz. The aspiring screenwriter was in his mid-20s when he sat down to resurrect the teen sex comedy genre of the 80s. His goal was to write something like, say, Porky's, Revenge of the Nerds, or Fast Times at Ridgemont High. That's the vibe he was going for, but he also thought he could achieve that in a way that was a little more warm-hearted and a little less sexist than the teen movies of the 80s something he now admits he didn't totally achieve with American Pie. The screenplay he came up with follows a group of kind of dorky high school seniors who are on a quest to lose their virginities. It included the now infamous scene of a sexual encounter between a young man and a pie, and it also introduced the acronym MILF into our vocabulary. Ooh, I took some MILF. What the hell is that? M-I-L-F. Mom, I'd like to fuck. Okay, let's just say it's a gross-out teen sex comedy. But you know what? It's also kind of sweet. The four main characters, despite their misguided attempts to get lucky, are deep down, in fact, nice kids. Hers couldn't come up with a name for his screenplay at first, so he simply called it Untitled Teenage Sex Comedy, which can be made for under $10 million, which studio readers will likely hate, but I think you will love. That snappy title grabbed some attention, and so did the script. It sparked a bidding war, and Universal ended up the victor, shelling out a reported $750,000, which is an extraordinary amount for a first-time screenwriter. To direct the film, Universal signed on Chris and Paul Weitz, who co-wrote the 1998 animated movie Ants. When they were putting together the ensemble cast, the Whites brothers asked hers to get out his yearbooks and show them pictures of the classmates who had inspired the movie's characters. 
The cast they saddled on included Jason Biggs as awkward but kind Jim, Thomas Ian Nicholas as Ernest Kevin, Chris Klein as Jock Oz, and Eddie K. Thomas as the insecure intellect Finch. And don't forget, Eugene Levy, before he was David's dad on Schitt's Creek, he played another hilarious, lovable, and awkward father in American Pie. After it was completed, the movie was sent to the Motion Picture Association of America's rating board three times before it was finally given an R rating instead of the dreaded NC-17 rating. Several scenes in American Pie needed to be recut to avoid the designation, including that famous pie scene. Incidentally, the cut version ended up on the internet, and it's been described as way worse than something about Mary, but a lot funnier too. When American Pie was released in theaters on July 9th, 1999, everyone wanted a bite. It grossed $235.5 million at the box office, coming in at 15 on the earnings list that year. That was partly spurred on by the fact that teens went to see the movie multiple times. They had to if they wanted to hear all the jokes, because the laughter was so loud a lot of the dialogue was drowned out. The only R-rated comedies that made more money in the 90s were Pretty Woman, Jerry Maguire, and There's Something About Mary. After the incredible success of American Pie, there were many imitators, but none were as successful. Teen movies had reached an apex in 1999, and as we entered the new millennium, the genre had become tired, overdone, and even spoofed in the hit film Not Another Teen Movie. Well, we have run out of time again. I'm so sorry if I didn't mention your favorite movie from 1999. There are so many others we had to leave out. The Mummy, Notting Hill, Eyes Wide Shut, Magnolia, Wild Wild West, The Talented Mr. Ripley. Oh my gosh, the list seems endless. It really was a momentous year at the movies. Every single facet of the movie industry was really going in new directions creatively and culturally and in terms of technology. Um, And that coupled with the fact that no one really cared a huge amount about TV as their primary source of entertainment, that really made movies. I mean, that felt like a remarkable year to go to the movies over and over again. You just walked out and you were like, wow, that was good. Have you seen that? You know, it just really felt like movies were kind of ruling everything that year. There was a lot going on in the late 90s. Worries about Y2K, the arrival of the internet, video games, and an increased fear of gun violence. And Brian believes all of that seeped into the movies that we saw. I don't know whether it was a conscious sort of thing for a lot of filmmakers, but certainly when you look at those movies from 1999, even the really sort of big fun ones like Office Space or um, you know Fight Club, which were not huge movies at the time, but are certainly really well known now, they were all kind of... They were all sort of tapping in the same kind of sense of unease and kind of frustration about where things were going. Whether or not you agree that 1999 was the greatest movie year ever, there is no doubt that Hollywood had a golden run of films that year. It was an uncanny batch of breakthrough movies that were subversive, and they moved the needle in ways that will be hard to repeat. The industry has changed since then in many ways. In addition to a fractured market, thanks to cable TV and streaming services, 
there's very little room for innovative and new filmmaking because of the increasing reliance by studios on reboots, sequels, and Marvel movies. But that doesn't mean movies are a lost cause. 2019, for example, was a great year. With Parasite, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, Uncut Gems, Jojo Rabbit, and Booksmart. Just imagine the zeitgeist that filmmakers will be tapping into thanks to COVID-19. I guess we'll find out in about three or four years from now. Thanks for joining me at this look back at some of the great movies of 1999. Check out the show notes for a full list of movies from 99, and that should keep you busy for a while during your time in self-isolation. You can also find a link to my guest, author Brian Raftery. His book, Best Movie Year Ever, How 1999 Blew Up the Screen, is a great read, and it provided many of the details in the past two episodes, so thanks to Brian. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe to our show so you never miss an episode. And while you're there, please rate and review us. It helps spread the word and get more people to find the podcast. We're available for free at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and everywhere else you get your streaming audio. And you can always listen at CuriousCast.ca. If you're new to the show, be sure to go back and check out some of our older episodes, like the one on the Long Island Lolita that I mentioned in this episode. If you have an idea for a show, I would love to hear from you. I've heard from tons of listeners already with some great ideas. So if you've got one, please send it my way. You can reach me through Twitter at 1990s History or on Instagram and Facebook. And you can also email me directly at 90s at CuriousCast.ca. That's 90s at CuriousCast.ca. This show is hosted and co-written by me, Kathy Kinzora, and Dila Velasquez, our producer. Sound design and final production is by Rob Johnston. And special thanks to Dylan Moore for his editing assistance. See you next time for more History of the 90s.